Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I have the honor of talking with Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith about their new and very important book, After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. This book was published by the Lawfare Press um, in 2020, and it is a book not only outlining some of the issues that we faced over the last four or more years with regard to the presidency, but also specific ideas for reform. And I'm going to let Bob and Jack tell us about that. First, I'd like to welcome them to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask them to tell us each a little bit about themselves and how they came to this project on reconstructing the American presidency. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So uh, I'm a professor at Harvard Law School. I served in the government for two years in 2003 and 2004, first in the Defense Department in the General Counsel's Office as a special counsel to the General Counsel, and then as uh, the head of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department, which is the office that advises the Attorney General and the President and other agencies on the legality of various executive branch matters. Um, I've written a lot about the presidency, both books and articles, uh, especially since I've been in the government. That was in 2003, 2004. This book uh, came about, Bob will tell you about himself in a second, but this book came about when Bob and I were, we, uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about Bob before he does, and then he can say more. He was a White House counsel under Obama, uh, President Obama. And uh, when he came out of office, we started talking about we were at conferences together and we started talking about projects together and we had planned on writing a book about the White House Counsel's Office, which is where he served. And uh, in the course of our first big meeting, a day-long meeting to try to plan out that book, over the course of that day, which I think was in January of 2019, um, we decided that we that there was going to be a huge reform debate when Trump was gone. And we decided it would be useful to try to write a kind of framework book for how to think about that reform. 
And so that's the discussion that led. We didn't know what the issues were going to be or what we were going to agree on. Um, we hoped that that you know writing a, a, about the presidency from the from the perspective of people with different political outlooks might be a useful thing to do. And so anyway, that was the genesis of the project. And Bob, you um, also have um, a stellar career in law. Could you tell us a little about yourself as well? Certainly. Thank you. I spent the better part of uh, my legal career in private practice. I actually specialized in regulation of the political process. So I represented clients on campaign finance and voting rights and government ethics and tax exempt issue advocacy type issues. For a very long time, I set up a department at my law firm of many decades called the Political Law Group. I went into government only a couple of times before my White House counsel years. I went briefly, very young, into the Carter administration to help with the concluding phases of the lobbying program on Senator, uh, uh, President Carter's energy proposals. And I then went back into the government again briefly um, to work on the Clinton impeachment trial as counsel to the uh, Democratic leader at the time, Tom Daschle. And then I spent the year and a half uh, in the Obama administration um, as White House counsel to uh, President Obama. I was before that and after that um, the general counsel to his presidential campaigns, his first and then his reelection campaign. When I left there, I decided I was going to start transitioning uh, out of private practice into teaching and writing. Um, I'd done some a little bit of teaching on a spot guest basis and as much writing as I could fit in, primarily law reviews, some much of it within my area of expertise, but every now and then I would address um, other issues as well. Um, and the genesis of the book that, that uh, Jack and I wrote is precisely as he described it. Um, it was something that we never imagined would be a project as comprehensive in this treatment of these institutional issues as it ended up being. And But I did that uh, until I took a leave to work on the Biden campaign in the fall uh, and will be resuming my teaching at NYU in the spring. But we finished the book before I went into uh, full-time campaign world. And this really is a fascinating sort of structural book that looks at the idea of reform in terms of things that are not necessarily amendments to the Constitution, which is also a lot of what we sometimes think about when we think about reforming the executive. Um, but I wanted to ask you a bit, as I've been reading through this book, you structure it really, really usefully for those who are reading it in terms of here are the problems, here are ideas for reform. And you go through a lot of different areas. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with this sort of, it's, it's a blueprint um, or a white paper, if you will, um, for Congress and for the American people. We, um, well, it, it kind of is a blueprint, a 436 page <laughs> blueprint. It's a long blueprint. <laughs> we, you know, we didn't, we started off when we started the project, we started off, we knew that a big topic had to be reform of, um, the DO department of justice and white house relations. Cause that's one of the areas that has proven to be most uh, under pressure and had the most problems under the Trump administration. We knew that that was going to be a large part of the problems. This was it. We started the book, I believe, when, spe when the special counsel investigation was, I guess it had just completed maybe. 
but the special counsel was was going on or in the news and um um you know trump was consistently trying to get the doj to do his will so we knew that was gonna be a large part of the book and that ended up being five or six chapters in all of part two and just one thing i'll say is that the book is not just about reforms via congress a lot of the proposed reforms are reforms that can be implemented by the executive branch through regulations and practices and the like. So that was, we knew would be a core part of the book. We knew also that there were some uh, issues that were probably more personal to the presidency that needed fixing. And that ended up being part one of the book, which were, which includes things like uh, presidential tax disclosure, conflict of interest rules, Trump's treatment of the press, his abuse of the pardon power, things closer to the home of the presidency. And then that's part one. And part three of the book is really the areas of where the the reforms are the most challenging. And this is areas where Trump's, uh, I'll try it this way. This is areas where that that implicate traditional longstanding conflicts between the branches, where Trump is just the latest iteration and not necessarily in every context, the worst iteration of, presidential assertions of power vis-a-vis Congress. So things like the war powers, presidential appointment of vacancies for temporary positions, emergency powers, compliance with congressional subpoenas. These these are more traditional separation of powers conflicts, and we kind of put those in their own chapter because we thought those presented you know unusual challenges and challenges that should be considered separately. That's how we came up with you know, the parts, we, there are some things we could have discussed but didn't. Uh, we didn't anticipate the need to discuss reform of the transition process, for example. But anyway, that's how we came up with the structure of the book. And is in, in terms of the book itself, and I just wanted to ask this question because um, it's a new publication from a new press, the Lawfare Press. And so um, as we're diving into some of the discussion of what you are looking at in this book. Can you talk just a little tiny bit about how this book came out of Lawfare? Jack, you want to sketch that history? Yeah, I'll I'm, take, I'm happy I'll take to. It. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so we had several challenges in writing the book. I mean, we, we thought about taking it to a traditional press or to an academic press, um, but the pro- there were several problems there. As you know, writing a book for traditional publication, you basically have to finish the book eight or nine, and turn it in eight or nine months before publication. And you might be able to revise up until three or four months publication if you're lucky. But basically, there's a long gap between the time it leaves your hands and the time it comes out. And we thought that the um, that, that was going to be a problem for this book since things were changing so quickly and since so much was going on in the spring and summer of 2020. So we were considering how to deal with this problem and thinking about accepting with a traditional publication, Benjamin Wittes, the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, which, which I've co-founded with Ben a decade ago or so, and, and Bobby Chesney. He proposed that Lawfare publish it and that we uh, – and so law, and Lawfare basically provided the editing, the layout stuff, the copy editing, the substantive editing, all the things a traditional book publisher would do. And we basically published it through Amazon. And what this meant at the end of the day, so Lawfare published it through Amazon. And what this meant, though, and this is really important and really interesting, because the book has done pretty well, and yet we were able, the book actually came out very early in September. 
And we were literally writing and changing and editing right up until about five days before publication or maybe a week. And that's just unheard of. And it, it proved mm-hmm. to be hugely important because so much happened over the summer that was relevant to reform. So the main reason we did it is so that we could be t- nimble, nimble and timely, but it's, it's turned out to be, turned out to be really an excellent experiment. And, and that is definitely different than most academic books, yes. <laughs> which take two years to get out yeah. the door usually. Right. Um, so thank you for, for that uh, small digression to explain a little bit about that. Um, I, I wanted to ask uh, sort of a broad question. Um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I took a class in graduate school that was co-taught by Harvey Mansfield and Sid Milkus that was titled, Is a Republican Executive Possible? Um, and the idea, obviously, was coming out of Mansfield's book at the time, Taming the Prince, um, and some of the work that Milkus had been doing and to some degree, your book is a, is a kind of legal response to that sort of conceptual idea. Can you talk about how these reforms and also the abuses of the office are sort of at the heart of our understanding of how a president, an executive, can exist within a republic that we have in the United States? Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to open on that one um, simply by saying we say in the book that we share the belief that the president has to be a powerful institution. It's a center of energy in the executive, as Hamilton famously said. But then we quote um, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Uh, as saying, as writing uh, in the course of you know, what he had to say on the subject of what he called the imperial presidency, that the presidency also has to be constitutionally accountable, a strong executive within a system of constitutional accountability. And so throughout the book, uh, we try to uh, anticipate and address how a particular reform is going to redress some of the problems that we see, some of the clear-cut fissures in the legal controls and constraints, normative constraints on the presidency, without so weakening the presidency that it can't function as an institution in the way that we believe it should within our system. And Jack, do you want to add anything to that? No, I mean, unless you, what, why don't you, if you have a follow-up to that, I'd be happy to answer it. I'm not I, I mean, what Bob said. I, I mean, I certainly agree. And Hamilton's argument with regard to energy is one that is vitally important to understanding the executive as it was designed. Um, and And I'm really curious also with regard to the reforms that you talk about, that they are, in fact, trying to install a form of accountability that was not necessarily present in the original design of the executive. And so I guess that's my follow-up to this question of how to present a an executive that still has power and sufficient power um, as designed into it, but that is also more accountable within our our yeah. sort of Republican system. Yes. So, you I mean, you just stated the challenge, and I'll describe it this way. First of all, the presidency is incomprehensibly larger and more powerful than, than when Hamilton spoke and when the framers designed the office. And I think many of them had in mind that this was going to be a powerful office, but they couldn't have imagined just how the government would change and how the world would change and how the office would grow. So it's just this 
hugely powerful office and to make it more challenging in terms of accountability because of the structure of the Constitution, because Article 2 gives the president, you know, vests the executive power in the president uh, without qualification, gives the president these enormous powers of um, control over the executive branch and puts, puts them on a constitutional basis in some sense. It's hard as a constitutional matter to regulate some ex- acts, some executive branch acts. It's always been a challenge to come up with a system. This goes back to the independent council statute in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's always been a challenge within a system within the system of Article 2 to put constraints on the enforcement power of the executive branch because you have to acknowledge that the president, as a constitutional matter, controls prosecutions. So these are enormous challenges. But the and you know we say in the book, and this is a qualitative judgment. We can't we can't uh, assign you know, kind of well. It's a qualitative judgment. We say in the book that we're in favor of a powerful presidency, and yet as you say, so how do you check it? So it's clear that the presidency can and is can be and is constrained. I mean, the the nineteen seventies Watergate reforms, um, whatever their status today, they were largely successful in updating the accountability constraints um, on the presidency with enhanced transparency, lots more internal executive branch checks, lots more private enforcement of checks, um, and and lots of new norm-based checks that were really pretty powerful and successful for 50 years. So I I mean, I think the lesson of the the post-Watergate, post-Vietnam, post-Church Commission reforms is that uh, the beast can be tamed and can be, you know, brought within the constraints of the law and within the constraints of norms that we think are appropriate. I'm not saying every president always complied with the law. That's obviously not true, but that line is contested and there are reasons for that. But largely the system worked for those 50 years. And Trump just exposed all the flaws in it. And he exploded that the flaws that he mostly exposed were what I would call norm-based rather than law-based flaws, although he exposed some law-based ones as well. Uh, you know, things like conflicts of interest and tax disclosure and treatment of the press, but especially the first two, those were governed by norms for 50 years and they worked. It, the norms worked after Watergate and presidents complied with them, Republican and Democrat, even though they weren't required to by law. And in that, in those areas and others, Trump has shown that those norm-based constraints don't suffice. He's also shown in other contexts that the norm-based constraints are inadequate. So, you know, the book has dozens and dozens and dozens of reforms in about 14 different legal contexts. There's no silver bullet here. And our view is that the devil's in the details and that you have to focus on each one of these areas, figure out what the history is, figure out what the problem is, figure out what a pragmatic achievable solution is that isn't self-defeating in the sense of weaponizing the reform so that it makes things worse. But we're not globally skeptical about the possibility of bringing constraints to the president. It's been done before. And the last thing I'll say is Trump was not without constraint. He was actually constrained. And it's one of the remarkable things about his presidency. Despite his extraordinary efforts to run roughshod over both the law and norms of the executive branch, he was very often thwarted in trying to achieve his ends. Just read volume two of the Mueller report for one example, when he tried to get Mueller fired and couldn't get anyone to carry out his orders. So that's that's I th- we think we don't think that it's an insurmountable challenge. Getting the balance right is very hard, and you know everything we propose won't be enacted. And so 
wh whether what we propose will happen and whether it will work is another question altogether, but I'm not skeptical in theory. All right. So I wanted to ask you first about the reforms that you propose in the first part of the book, which are to some degree very specific in certain regards because they are about the pardon power, they're about financial disclosures, um, they're about specific things that we see that Trump engaged with um, in terms of some areas of norm violation, like not disclosing his tax returns, um, and then some in terms of the expansive use in particular regards with regard to the pardon power. And I have a question about whether Trump can pardon himself that I've been puzzling over for 30 years now. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about how these particular reforms are going to um, move forward, not only in terms of Congress and the executive, um, and I know some of the states have gotten in on this a little bit, but how these will potentially constrain in ways that, as Jack was saying, um, you know, some of the, the Watergate reforms have sort of shown where there are still areas that could use further constraint. Sure. And as I begin, I just want to pivot off of Jack's last answer to say one more thing about the way in which Donald Trump has exposed these fissures, because I think it, it plays directly into some of the topics I'm just about to comment on. And that is the difference between Donald Trump and the president to whom he's most often, uh, with whom he's most often compared, and that's Richard Nixon. Nixon, uh, of course, with Watergate, goes down as a president who was enmeshed in scandal and lost his office because of it. But he was always prepared to uh, acknowledge, even if he didn't mean it, he was prepared to embrace the forms, the institutional forms. And as you know, and this goes to Donald Trump, for example, in the release of tax returns and the running of a business while in the White House, Donald Trump has challenged those forms. Unlike Nixon, he's prepared to say, I think the Justice Department should bend to my will. I'm frustrated that it won't. I don't know why people are telling me it can't. I should be able to maintain my business interests in some form. I don't have to divest. Uh, no one should ask that of me. And those are, I think, propositions that... Uh, by and large, Nixon would have shied away from answering in the same way. On tax returns, on financial conflict interest, just to take up two of them, and then we can talk about foreign interference separately, however you want to take the conversation. Here you have, in the release of tax returns in particular, a longstanding norm. Presidential candidates and presidents have recognized since the Carter administration that they should be putting these tax returns out. And Donald Trump decided on a excuse that nobody, by the way, credits, including members of his own party, that he didn't have to put out his tax returns. He sort of vaguely said, maybe one day, but I'm always under audit. And he also challenged the notion that it added anything. He said the financial disclosures in the round that he was releasing under the Ethics and Government Act were more than sufficient to give people a complete picture of his finances. And so on top of everything else, his tax returns just weren't necessary. The release of his tax returns was not necessary. Uh, that and, of course, the running of his business. Um, he, he set up a unusual and I think highly porous and questionable so-called trust arrangement. But everybody understands that he has had contact with his business interests. He's gotten briefings from his son about how the business is going. There have been reports of his discussing the business with other employees. He's promoted the business through trips to his properties over the entire period of time that he's been president, the hotels down the street, doing business with people who are doing business with him. 
Uh, and he's been you know, relatively unabashed by it. The only wall he ever ran into was on the suggestion that he made that he hold the G7 summit in Doral. And that didn't succeed. But he did make that suggestion uh, because he thought that would be perfectly fine. So we make a series of uh, reform proposals in this area that tax disclosure be mandatory for presidential candidates and for presidents, that the IRS audits that are routinely conducted of presidential tax returns and have been uh, as a matter of policy uh, since the Carter administration be publicly available. And we talk about the various ways in which those tax disclosure requirements could be enforced. And that brings Congress into the picture. And on financial conflict of interest, we do something very similar. We say that the president should have no role at all on penalty of criminal exposure in the supervision or conduct of his or her business. And uh, we uh, try to uh, join to that a reform that will protect against the receipt uh, through the business of emoluments or benefits from foreign state sources. And in one of the proposals, and I'll stop here, I don't want to go on an excessive length, uh, we make the point that the president's finances should be completely transparent. And so unlike others who embrace the concept of a blind trust, we don't believe a president should be permitted to set up a blind trust. We think the president should be separated from his or her assets, but that those assets should be known, uh, that it should be clear through reporting by the businesses themselves what financial interest uh, that president is maintaining. So I'll just stop right there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And, and as, you, as you said, you bracketed it off foreign interference, which is one of the first chapters in the book, in part because obviously this has been with us since the campaign itself. Um, and so what is the idea with regard to how this can actually transpire and take place in terms of parsing out foreign interference? Um, and how can this be a reform for this executive that has the capacity to have a lot of latitude in foreign affairs and foreign engagement? Well, so uh, I'll just take the beginning of this. The foreign interference problem we think is going to continue. Uh, there are some uh, historical examples, nothing on the order of what we've experienced with Trump, certainly not the extent of the controversy in Trump's case, and his willingness to openly avow that he sees no reason why he wouldn't accept support from a foreign state. And so there are three categories into which our reforms fall. One is that presidential campaigns that are contacted by a foreign government with the intent of offering assistance should have the obligation to report those contacts to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That's number one. And that's a reform that we flesh out in some detail. Number two, another reform we flesh out in detail is that the federal campaign finance laws, well, let me put it to you, the one that we flesh out in detail is that the president um, and a foreign uh, government uh, should be prohibited from entering into what we call a mutual aid agreement. So if you think of the Trump Tower meeting, where 
the Trump campaign knows that the foreign government is sending emissaries to Washington to offer help in attacking Hillary Clinton, uh, the Trump campaign took that meeting and indicated an interest in what uh, the government had to offer. And there were other evidence of openness on the part of the Trump campaign to Russian government support. We believe that needs to be prohibited. And that leads to the third reform, which goes to very specific issue under the campaign finance laws, less important than category number two. But that is the question that Bob Mueller raised about whether you could, whether the law clearly prohibits uh, a contribution in the form of opposition research, um, the materials that are provided, resources provided by a foreign government to a presidential campaign. We think the law ought to be amended so it's clear that this kind of material, this kind of information does constitute a contribution. And because provided by a foreign government, uh, it would be illegal. And I wanted to ask both of you, because you are the experts also in terms of the legality on the pardon. And I read this chapter particularly closely um, in a seminar when I was in graduate school. I asked Bob Sigliano if the president could pardon himself. And Sigliano said no. Um, And of course, this is a very topical discussion at the moment. And you both talk about the fact that the sort of legal reasoning, constitutional reasoning goes in a variety of directions. I liked the proposed reform, and I would love to hear you both talk a little bit about the sort of pardon power in general, um, because my reading of Federalist 69 um, makes it interesting to compare it with the king um, and the the governor of New York, uh, but also in terms of how we understand the president's pardon power to work. Yeah, Bob, you want to go first? You want me to do that? No, Jack, go ahead, please. Okay. So, so here's how the pardon power works. I mean, it's it's one of the broadest and most unqualified powers in the Constitution, certainly in Article 2. By its terms, it has only two limits, as you know. One, it can't be used for impeachments. And two, it's limited to federal crimes and doesn't the president cannot pardon or commute sentences for state crimes. But absent those two um, qualifications, um, it doesn't have any textual qualifications. And the Supreme Court has always given it a very broad reading, and presidents have pardoned, especially in recent decades, they've pardoned uh, on any number of grounds, sometimes, and this is before Trump, for close friends, for relatives, for people who are involved in cases where the president may be involved. The pardon power is one that is easily subject to abuse, and it has been subject to abuse before Trump came into office. Um, but not nothing like on, I don't want to say the scale of Trump, but the, the concentration of Trump. Trump's only issued, this is actually a relatively small, small number for this point in his presidency, 45, I believe is the last number, pardons and commutations. But an unbelievably high number, 40 of those, uh, so um, a very high percentage have been what we call self-serving pardons. These are pardons that they they skirted the normal Justice Department process for assessing these things. They were done by back channels through the White House. Many of them served Trump's political interests or personal interests, his commutation of Roger Stone's sentence, his pardon of Michael Flynn, his pardon of Dinesh D'Souza to kind of poke it in the eye of the people who prosecuted Dinesh D'Souza. 
also to score points with Republicans. So these are what I would call abuses of the pardon power, but they're not illegal. They're not, they're not, um, they're not, they don't violate the Constitution. And so the question is, what limits are there on the pardon power beyond the two that I just expressed? And we, we talk about this in the chapter, and we basically suggest two important limits that can be bucked up through reforms. One is that even though the president can give a pardon to whomever he wants for basically whatever reason he wants and the pardon would be valid, it doesn't follow that the president doesn't commit a crime and that the person receiving the pardon doesn't commit a crime if, for example, the president gave a pardon in exchange for a bribe or if the president gave a pardon to someone to keep them quiet in an ongoing investigation or get them to alter evidence and therefore obstruct justice. Those types of arrangements, we believe they might be illegal under current law, and they can be made clearly illegal through reform, through statutory reform that clarifies that the bribery statute and the obstruction of justice statute apply to the president. And that's our first uh, proposed reform. And we think that's going to be, I think we're about to see in the next several weeks, uh, quite a number of pardons through back channels and for friends and with all sorts of uh, sort of um, sleazy machinations going on, as is typical of the Trump White House, I think we're about to see a lot of pardons that might implicate that reform. And that would be a very important one, we think, for for putting guardrails on the most extreme and worrisome abuses. And the second one is, as you say, the uh, self-pardon. And I'm not so, quite so confident as your professor, but I, I do think in the end of the day that the, <laughs> the first of all, the reason is, is that the, the Constitution just doesn't directly address the question. It doesn't explicitly address the question. So Everybody that's making a confident argument about this is drawing inferences from structure or from the absoluteness of the pardon power or something like that. And the truth is there's not a single case that's addressed it. There's one line in one Justice Department opinion that suggested that self-pardons were illegal. If I had to predict, I would say that the Supreme Court would not, if it came to it, uphold a self-pardon. But in any event, we think a self-pardon should not be allowed. Uh, And we think that one important way to ensure that it won't be allowed is for Congress to make crystal clear that they are prohibited. And if Congress does that, that can't, that won't constitute a final answer to the constitutional question. Congress can't do the ultimate constitutional interpretation. But we do think it would help inform the Supreme Court's deliberation on the question uh, if Congress weighs in with, in effect, its constitutional judgment. So those that that's our basic view of the pardon power, and um and and so I am um, intrigued to see if Trump will in fact try to self pardon because obviously then we will be going down um, another constitutional path, um, as you note in the book with regard to how this will be tested um, in court uh, following such a thing. Um, but I wanted to move to this the second part of the book, which is big and expansive um, and focuses specifically, as you both noted, on the Justice Department and the relationship between the Justice Department and the the president, the presidency, the White House. Um, can you first talk about why you thought that this was such an area that needed so much attention? Um, and also reform. Jack, do you want to kick that one off? Sure. Um, Well, as you say, I think we devote five chapters to variations of this question. And it's a complicated question. And and, and let me explain why it's complicated. 
it's complicated. I, I suggested this earlier, but I'll say it so in a little bit more detail. So this is one of the hardest questions in my view in constitutional law is how to ensure that the Justice Department and under the control and supervision of the president and the attorney general appointed by the president doesn't use its really extraordinarily powerful law enforcement tools in a corrupt way, in a corrupt way either to protect the president or protect a senior executive branch official who may have committed a crime or to use those tools to further the president's ends by using them to go after, for example, a political opponent or to try to affect an election or something like that. Uh, those are, that's a very hard cluster of problems. And there's an op- there's, a, there's another set of problems. And, and so that's, 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 a, that's a hard set of problems. And it goes very deep because it's not just about trying to devise a system that will both allow the pres- the attorney general to have broad prosecutorial discretion as our system does and allow the president to have control over and supervis- supervisory control over the executive branch, but also to ensure that they don't do those things. That is a very hard problem in and of itself. A related problem, and it's one we also address, is, well, what about the acts of actually investigating the president and investigating presidential campaigns? This has been a hugely controversial issue in uh, since 2016, starting with the FBI investigation of the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, also of the Donald Trump campaign. Sorry, the investigation was not of the Hillary Clinton campaign. It was of Hillary Clinton's emails, but it, ha- it happened during her presidential campaign. At the same time, the FBI was investigating the Trump presidential campaign. All of this, as we show, building on inspector general reports, was while the investigations themselves were properly predicated and therefore legitimate, there were lots of problems in the in the way that the FBI went about conducting these investigations. And we build there on a lot inspector general reports from uh, Michael Horowitz in the Justice Department. So that's just so. There are many sides to the problem of how do you design the Justice Department and the White House to ensure that there's not abuse, but also to ensure that the people ensuring that there's not abuse don't themselves don't themselves abuse power. I mean, there's a long history of the FBI using its really extraordinary tools of surveillance and law enforcement to kind of manipulate politics and and um, and political outcomes. And I don't think at all that the 2016, 2017, 2018 FBI was motivated uh, for the same reasons that J. Edgar Hoover was, but it's the same basic problem of how do you ensure that the domestic uh, surveillance and law enforcement agency doesn't abuse its powers. So that's just a sketch. And then there's the question of how does one administration investigate a prior administration? There are many, many aspects to the problems. They were all front and center. How does the special counsel work? That's a very complicated issue. Robert Mueller's investigation was the first time, first full-blown uh, use of the special counsel regulations promulgated in 1999. So we learned a lot from that. So this whole cluster of issues, which are really central to the integrity of law enforcement, were all front and center and called into question during the Trump administration. And so we devoted a lot of time and energy to trying to address the problems. And and one of the questions that I have in this regard, because the focus is so squarely within this question of the Justice Department, the uh, the issue of law enforcement, um, conflicts of interest around that, um, and sort of sussing out where there can be some constraints that would work. 
Um, can you talk about uh, why law enforcement itself in this context is something that is vital to the executive? This is the person who executes the laws, but there's all these other parts of the executive branch. Um, but this one in particular is one that's troublesome, um, not only, as you note, with regard to Trump, but also J. Edgar Hoover during his period long uh, tenure at the um, FBI and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about this issue and, and where all of these sort of spokes that come off from the special counsel um, to, you know, essentially the attorney general's job um, to U.S. attorneys' jobs. Uh, and, and most Americans don't necessarily have a clear sense of what all of these pieces are and how they're supposed to work or how we hope that they will work. I'm happy to just open by saying something about the special counsel regulations because we have a separate chapter devoted to that. Does that help uh, attack sure. the question? We spent a good bit of time on that. And as a matter of fact, in the appendix, where we have a few sample reforms that we actually put in proposed for discussion purposes, for argument purposes, legislative or regulatory language, one of them is the revisions that we would make to the special counsel statute, or excuse me, special counsel regulations. They didn't work um, the way I think the designers hoped uh, in 2016, uh, 2017. Uh, there are lessons to be learned from that experience, questions uh, that are very important about what we expect from the special counsel in particular, as distinguished from the role that the attorney general really has to play as the supervising executive branch officer. We very specifically believe and advance the proposition that while the attorney general has to retain supervisory control and the ultimate decision about whether a case will be brought or not, the special counsel has a unique fact-finding role and has to be given latitude the way the regulations are, should be crafted in our view, latitude for to reach that fact-finding and to share the facts of these matters, matters that involve the president or senior executive branch officials with Congress and with the public. And we saw that these confusion of roles uh, created some significant static and conflict uh, during the Trump administration. But it was probably in part because, and this is very difficult to do, those who drafted the special counsel regulations in the wake of the experience with the independent counsel statute just did not anticipate that these problems might arise. And so we make a suggestion the example I gave you is one. There are other examples of how we might learn from that experience and fix the problem. But I'll, I'll pause there to let Jack come into this. Yeah, I'll just speak to the broader question that you asked about at the broadest level, trying to explain how the system's supposed to work. It's actually, it's actually somewhat complicated and subtle. In theory, in theory, the president of the United States is the chief executive officer, and the attorney general is by statute and by delegation from Article 2, you know, basically his his um, delegee, the person to whom he delegates these powers, and that, that power is also constituted by statute. But the president, and a lot of Supreme Court cases say this, he basically has supervisory control over all of law enforcement in the entire country. And that includes in the U.S. Attorney's offices and all federal law enforcement. And broadly conceived, by the way, not just, you know, criminal prosecutions, but all law enforcement. And the president sits atop that giant pyramid that is the executive branch. And 
Um, and, and that's the way Article 2 is set up, and there's lots of Supreme Court cases that say the president possesses this power. Now, there's a debate in constitutional law and in the Supreme Court jurisprudence about the extent to which some of these actors can be made independent of the president. And there are Supreme Court decisions that do recognize that Congress can make some of these actors independent of presidential control, at least, for example, when it comes to having for-cause provisions for removal, for example. Although I will also say that the current Supreme Court is somewhat skeptical of that and has a, embraces what seems to be a pretty broad view of the unitary executive. In any event, on the one hand, the president has supervisory control that he can enforce through firing subordinate officials. And there aren't any kind of for-cause removal provisions with regard to uh, the attorney general or U.S. attorneys. So in theory, the president's in charge. In reality, the president's not in charge, um, as we've seen under Donald Trump. You said earlier that um, it takes it takes there's some things that it takes the president can't do on his own. He has to act through subordinates. And there are a lot of things that have gone on in his administration. And there, there has never been a president who is more frustrated in the way his administration was running. And there's never been a president who suffered so much insubordination from officials throughout the executive branch. I mean, Trump really was kind of incompetent in wielding executive power and in controlling the executive branch in many respects. In any event, to make a long story short, there are a whole bunch of norms and practices that gives various levels of independence between the White House and the Justice Department and between the Justice Department and the U.S. Attorney's offices. And there are a range of views on this. I mean, Bill Barr has a very strong view about the Attorney General's absolute control over these things. In reality, it's much harder to effectuate than Barr thinks, as we saw when he tried to remove the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York and put in a Trump crony only to be thwarted by law and norms and have to back down and accede to the career person taking over. So when people talk about Justice Department independence, it's, it's much more complicated than that because the president has theoretical control and independence arises through norms, through political checks, and the like. And famously in the book, you two disagree with regard to essentially the Justice Department likely coming forward um, following uh, January 20th um, and investigating the president. Um, can you each talk a little bit about your perspective with regard to why this is both important and and why this is, of course, quite tricky? Well, so I can I can start that off by saying uh, we first of all each of us acknowledge the force of the other person's argument. I mean, <clears throat> I'm not arguing that there aren't significant issues when one administration investigates under the criminal laws the conduct of the previous one. There's a concern there with setting up a perverse norm that we don't want to have followed. And I think it's fair, and Jack can speak for himself, to say Jack is not arguing that the president is not is above the law. But it's tricky uh, because there are significant trade-offs here. It's almost an understatement to say there are trade-offs. On the one hand, uh, you want to establish that the rule of law applies as much to the president, but on the other hand, you also want to do this in a discriminating fashion that does not establish a norm of rounds of mutual retribution. Uh, and in a polarized polity, that's a particularly heightened risk. My own view is that 
we need to take very seriously um, any allegations supported by credible evidence of misconduct by the president. That is not to say that the administration should go about uh, the new administration would or should go about, you know, systematically looking at every corner for some kind of evidence that would justify some fresh prosecution of Donald Trump. But the ongoing investigations, and I think Jack agrees with this, for example, in Manhattan, which is not a federal prosecution, certainly in the Southern District of New York, which is a federal prosecution, should continue. And if evidence does surface, uh, compelling evidence does surface of wrongdoing in office, uh, not only, for example, uh, obstruction of justice, as it was discussed in the Mueller report, but you know, fresh instances where Trump uh, may have committed this obstruction or may have engaged in other criminal offenses. Keep in mind that John Bolton said that, for that, as far as he could tell, as national security advisor, obstruction of justice was a way of life for Donald Trump. Then it seems to me that evidence has to be pursued. And I'll conclude by saying the dilemma that we're in, and it's very tricky, I'm not going to deny that it's very tricky, is that we have executive branch law that protects the president against prosecution while in office, not investigation, but prosecution, and a norm that at least some people inflate beyond, I think it's fair articulation, based on the Nixon pardon of, excuse me, the Ford pardon of Nixon, that civil healing uh, really requires that presidents be spared maybe except in the most egregious cases, criminal prosecution after they leave office. And so I'm worried that if protected by law from prosecution while in office and protected by norm from prosecution while out of office, we really do have something that's beginning to congeal into the untenable proposition that the president is above the law. So, I mean, I accept, all, yeah. Yeah, I accept all of that. And I basically agree with it as far as it, go, it goes. And Bob and I hash out our differences on this question in the book. But as he said, we're both sympathetic to the other's position. And as you said, it's it's actually a very tricky and difficult judgment call. And largely because I don't think that there is – I don't think we can – I'm not one who thinks that because Nixon was pardoned by four, that therefore there's a norm against prosecuting presidents for – uh, crime, or there should be a norm for it, not prosecuting presidents who committed crimes in office. I think it all depends on context. My basic posture is that I'm very skeptical that this can be successful, and I think it will lead to a more harmful, harmful outcome than helpful outcome for everyone, for the nation, for the Biden administration. I think it will have the effect of inflating Trump's uh, estimation in the country. It certainly will keep him center stage. So basically, here are the basic reasons. One, I don't think, at least based on what we know now publicly, it's not obvious that there are prosecutable crimes that Trump committed in office. The main ones, as Bob suggested, are obstruction of justice. It's clear that Trump did things that looked like obstruction of justice. Look at the 10 examples from the Mueller report, plus what Bolton said. As we also explained in the book, though, it's very tricky to, um, and, and very tricky constitutionally, legally, to prosecute a president for obstruction of justice if the alleged acts are anywhere close to an Article II power. It's one of the reasons why we one of our reforms is to clarify the obstruction of justice statutes that they apply to the president. So I'm doubtful, I'm skeptical at the outset that uh, he's committed a prosecutable crime. I doubt very seriously if he'll ever go to jail, even if he did commit a crime, the legal hurdles and the political hurdles to making it work, especially in the context of Donald Trump, are very high. And 
if you set out on this path and you open up this can of worms and then you fail, then you've, I think, set back the rule of law, then it could turn out differently. But I think you've, you've not helped the situation. I think that Trump will thrive off the attention of such an investigation. I think it will suck the air out of the Biden administration. It will certainly make it uh, harder for both the Justice Department and the Biden administration generally to accomplish their other aims. I think that there are other forms of accountability besides criminal prosecution, including being kicked out of office in an election. And um, so, you know, my basic, and, and as Bob said, I also think it's perfectly legitimate and fine and appropriate for the investigations of Trump concerning his pre-presidential actions to continue. But I'm just, um, I'm not advocating for a norm of immunity for presidents for crimes committed in office. And I've discussed this with Bob. If there was, if we were to find evidence tomorrow of a really clear-cut, unambiguous, prosecutable crime like Trump, you know, being pictured accepting a cash in exchange for a pardon that he's handing out or something like that, for complicated legal reasons, that would be a much easier case to bring, and I think that would might change my calculus. But based on what we know now, I think it's it's bound to end in failure and make things worse. And and so I had one last question for the two of you in terms of the the reforms themselves, which are to some degree the through line. I think through a lot of the book is to sort of make sure that the president is not really considered to be above the law and and can't kind of act in a way that is above the law. Um, and that's the foundational premise with regard to not only the president, but also elected officials in other roles in the United States. Um, but the reforms themselves are to sort of constrain bad actions. Uh, does that have an impact potentially on who might ultimately run for the office and the their sort of their character? Or is it just a kind of legal structure that would prevent some of the abuses that we've seen? Just a real quick comment from me. Um, I would just say, I don't know that I would characterize our objective solely to prevent the president from engaging in bad actions. Some actions presidents might engage in for what they believe to be absolutely consistent with the public interest, but it would still significantly exceed uh, their constitutional authority and supplant the role of other institutions. And so there's also a constraint here that's not just directed against abuse of power in the worst sense where self-interest is implicated, but just disregard of the constitutional scheme that we have with separated powers and the like. So I just want to, I want to stress that uh, just in, in answering that, in answering the question, as to the as as to the impact on people seeking office, um, so I have the I, I, this this is just you know we don't discuss this at length in the book, but there's a scholar uh, at Cato who's written a book called The Cult of the Presidency. There are popular cultural reasons uh, why people expect a great deal uh, from presidents. We have a tendency to lapse into hero worship of the people who win the office. As soon as they become president, we know that their birthplaces will become historic monuments. We take an interest in the name of their pets and what they have for breakfast. Um, and they become you know, really ex- sort of celebrities extraordinaire in the constellation. And um, that might very well um, attract people with um, 
some form of you know narcissistic personality disorder to the office. And given our tendency then to have a presidency that attracts people who are interested in as much power as they can lay their hands on, if these kinds of reforms dissuade people from imagining that, as Donald Trump famously said, Article 2 lets me do whatever I want or something to that effect, then I think all the better. Um, we should have the constraints uh, in place to protect us from from untoward actions of those who are in office. And for those who may think that Donald Trump has articulated a very um, attractive model of the presidency uh, and would be interested in replicating this most recent experience, I would hope that these reforms would stand as a way of persuading them to stay with whatever else they're doing in the private sector. I'll just add to that by saying, I agree with what Bob said, you know, I didn't really think, we mostly, the book is premised on the worry that we may see future Trumps who are more competent and devious at wielding executive power than he was. And that Trump has shown the path for serious presidential abuse, you know, much greater than Trump himself. So we were really worried about what happens if another more clever Trump comes into office how can the system be bucked up to deal better with that than it has in the last four years? But in thinking about it, if our reforms pass, and I'll just, just take the tax disclosure requirement and the conflict of interest rules, I mean, the office is going to be less attractive to a Donald Trump, to a future Donald Trump who has his profile, if in fact all of his taxes have to be disclosed and all of his businesses have to be entirely transparent. And if he's prevented by criminal, on pain of criminal penalty, from having any involvement in his businesses, and if he has to engorge all, disgorge all profits uh, drawn from foreign sovereign sources, these are some of our reforms that would certainly have made this presidency, uh, the presidency, less attractive to Donald Trump, and perhaps it will to a future one. And I also think that at the margins, especially the tax disclosure rule, will have the uh, benefit of making it less likely that Donald, the Donald Trumps of the world, are uh, elected. And, and of course, the tax disclosure rule is a potentially easy one yeah. to get in, enacted and, and passed and, and on the books without it being a constitutional question. Yeah, exactly. So I, um, I wanted to thank you both for joining me today. Um, I assume that you will continue to work on these questions um, and advocacy for some of these reforms. Um, and of course, I welcome both of you separately or together back on the New Books Network if you have a new book um, in the future. Uh, and this one, I take it, is available through Amazon. Is that correct? Or through Lawfare? It's available on Amazon. It's available in some independent bookstores. It's available in Barnes & Noble. Um, okay. So, But the easiest way to get it is either uh, in paperback copy or on Kindle on Amazon. Okay, great. Thank you, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, for joining me today to talk about After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, just recently published by the Lawfare Press, which I guess will be a new press that we'll look out for. Thank you very much. Thank you for your great question.